Good morning, everybody. Please stand for the scripture. Today's reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he could confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a pace. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, will warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on alert there. <clears throat> the king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It is not us, my lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom, go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And a report came back, Elijah is in Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When a servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elijah was filled with horses and chariots of fire. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness, as Elijah had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do not kill prisoners of war. Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. You may be seated. Thank you, Garnet. Well, hey, everybody. How we doing? Glad you're at Hope City Church. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to have a chance to do that. We are, we're taking a few weeks to talk about a pretty serious and heavy topic. Um, we're calling it Angels and Demons, um, which deserves a sound effect, you know, dun, 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 when you say it. Um, but really what we're talking about is, is the topic of spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare. And, and we're going to continue that. But before I do that, I, I want to just make a little plug. We ordered 10 or 15 copies of uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters this week and put them out in the bookstore. I'd love for you to pick up a copy if you're a reader, uh, if you're interested. You guys know the joke is I quote Lewis like every week. I'm not today. As a matter of fact, I'm just plugging one of his books. But, um, but this is um, 
probably like a great entry point into Lewis if you want to read this, but it's, a, it's almost a satire. That's not the, it's not exactly a satire, but it's a book written in reverse. So in essence, um, Lewis wrote from the perspective of a demon mentor to a demon uh, pupil about how to be a good demon. So it's like in reverse, like it's kind of giving you the playbook of, of the devil. Um, but written just in a, in a really bright way. So if you've never read that, I would encourage you to do that. You can go by the bookstore, and as long as we have them, you can pick that up. Um, read it, and then come talk to me about it. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk to you. So just wanted to plug that for you. But we've been talking about spiritual warfare, and um, we started this last week. Really, we just define spiritual warfare as a battle that is happening between good and evil for your soul. This is what spiritual warfare is. It's a very real thing, but it's easy to miss because it's not happening uh, physically in front of us. It's not something we see. The Bible says that it happens in uh, a spiritual realm, uh, an invisible realm. But even though we can't see it, doesn't mean it is not real, that, that at this very moment, even as I'm preaching right now, if I was using language that the Bible would use, like even in this room as I am preaching, I'm not just preaching to you. I am preaching to powers and principalities uh, of darkness. Um, and so that is what spiritual warfare is. It is this battle that is happening between good and evil. And the prize of that battle is your soul. That's the point of it all. Is what we said is that the devil is fighting to win your soul uh, because he hates God and God loves you. And so I want to continue that today. And I want to start with, with two quotes uh, that I think will help us where we're going. The first is uh, from David Foster Wallace in his commitments, uh, com- commencement excuse me, address at Kenyon College, a famous commencement speech that he gave. He started his speech with uh, a joke about two young fish who are swimming along when an older fish passes by them and nods and says, uh, morning, how is the water? And the two young fish swim a little farther ahead, and then one of them turns to the other and says, what is water? And the point that Wallace was trying to make is that, is that culture and society, the world that you live in, is so um, normal to you and to me that we don't even realize we're living in it and swimming in it was the point that, that he was trying to make there. But the second quote um, comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his 1983 Templeton Prize Address. And I want to put it up on the screen because I want you to see this. He said, Today's world has reached a state which, if it had been described to preceding centuries, would have called forth the cry, this is the apocalypse. Yet we have grown used to this kind of world. We even feel at home in it. And I share those two quotes with you because I think it's going to help us today take our next step in this area or this topic of, uh, of spiritual warfare. And so we started last week by just kind of at its basic, simplest foundational piece by just admitting and accepting the fact that the devil is real. The devil is real, and it's not, he's not uh, wearing a red costume with horns and a pitchfork, um, and he's not like maybe the movies portray him to be. But Jesus, over 20 times in Jesus' life and ministry, talked about the existence of the devil And we read last week where Jesus gives his longest discourse about the devil, and he said a couple things. First of all, the devil's real. He said the devil can't do anything but lie. It's the only thing the devil can do. If he's talking, he's lying. 
And Jesus said that it's possible to be so influenced by the devil that you could be serving and following in his evil ways and not even realize it. But what we learned is that this battle that we're in, that the devil is real, and this battle that we're in, it's not really punch versus punch. It's not a Marvel movie, you know, it's not Star Wars, it's not so much galactic powers and spaceships and all of those things, that what Jesus said is that while there are, you know, demonic things that are very real that we need to be aware of, the strongest attack of the enemy and the, the, the weapon of choice, if you will, of the devil is, is that of lies, that of lies. The devil doesn't have to... Um, uh, get you to be um, possessed by a demon if he can just get you believing that, that lies are truth. And so the battlefield that, that this war is waged on, so much of it happens here in our minds. Believing the truth instead of believing, believing the lies. And so if the devil's biggest threat is believing lies, and it is, that's what Jesus said, then our most Potent defense is recognizing lies and rejecting them so that we can believe the truth. That's a, that's a pretty uh, basic next step. That if the devil's biggest threat is believing lies, our most potent defense is recognizing lies and rejecting them so that we can believe the truth. To which everyone would say, yeah, I'm in. Let's do that. I want to reject lies. I want to believe the truth. How do I know what's true, Jason? And this is incredibly difficult to, to do for several reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is because of the way that we are influenced by the society and the culture that, that we live in. That we are not as independent as we claim to be or uh, free-willed as we like to believe that we are. That's, that mostly we are um, the product of the environment that we are in. Not everyone will agree with this statement, but if you were born 500 years ago on a different continent, you would be a much different person. You would believe and act a lot of different ways. And many of the things today that you would say feel very right and normal, you would think uh, we wouldn't have thought that uh, 500 years ago on a different continent, right? Or even on this continent. And so this goes back to that Foster Wallace quote that the fish swim in the water every day, but they are unaware that they are even in water. They don't even know what water is. They are just swimming in it all the time. And so, so many of the conclusions that we come to are based on these influencing factors in our life. So I, I put together, I drew a little picture that, that hopefully can kind of help us understand what's happening uh, for us in, in helping us to, to, or convincing us that things are true. If you guys can throw that image up on the screen for me. There are more than three. There's probably five or six, but I think you could kind of summarize how you and I come to the conclusion that something is true through three dominant influencing factors. You have what you want to be true, that so much of what you come to the conclusion is true, one of the influencing factors in there is what you want to be true. You also have what you were taught was true, your tradition, your heritage, your environment. And then you have what the majority of the people around you think is true, which again, this is where we would say like, nope, not me. Um, I had a conversation with my 14-year-old daughter yesterday. We were at the store looking for a, 
uh, a sweatshirt, and uh, I picked out two or three I thought were awesome, and on sale, by the way. <laughs> and uh, she's like, Dad, no, no, no. And I said, which ones do you like? You know, and she picked out some that were like really expensive. And, uh, and I said, you know, I have a question for you, Sadie. Like, how do you decide what's good and what's not? Like, how do you decide what looks good and what doesn't? Is it just based on what you see your friends wearing at school? And she was so offended. She was like, no, I don't need people to tell me what is good or not. I know what looks good on my own. That's what she said. I said, I just rolled my eyes. Conversation was over. But this is true about, it's not just about fashion. This is true about everything in our life. We like to believe that we're independent. We like to believe that we're not influenced uh, in the clothes we wear, the music we listen to, the things that we believe are true. But statistics would tell us that 86% of people, 86% of people go with the flow and, and only like less than 10% are true innovators, that they would be willing to to, to buck the trend and to go do their own thing, that 86, almost 90% of us are followers. And so this is true in our beliefs and our philosophies. And so you have what you want to be true, what you were taught was true, and what the majority of the people around you say or think is true. And without even realizing it, from the time you are old enough to begin kind of processing the way the world works and what you believe and what is true, these are converging to shape your, your beliefs. And they're always adapting a little bit, but the dominant influences on how you determine what is true is what is convenient, what is familiar, and what's popular. What's convenient. What's, so let's, let's take um, an example of like what's true about um, success, what's true about wealth. Let's just take that as an example. Well, there are things that you want to be true about success and wealth because if it's true, that's good for you. There are things that your parents taught you or your mentor taught you about how to succeed and how to build wealth. And so that's in the back of your mind. And so you, you, know, you have that driving you. And then also, if it's very important for you to be successful and wealthy, you probably spend a lot of time with successful, wealthy people. And they have a uh, belief about what success and wealth is. And so you are swimming in that pool with those people. And so your beliefs about truth kind of match what you want to be true, what your, what your leaders or your parents told you was true, and what your peers around you say is true. And so you have a belief about wealth and success based on those influences. This is true uh, about sexuality. This is true about religion and faith, by the way. This is not just something for people outside of faith. This is true as well. Like many, many, many Christians, if you were to press them on why they believe what they believe, they would not be able to verbalize why they believe those things. The reality is they need it to be true because their life's built on it. They were raised in environments where people told them it was true, and they are mostly around religious people who all kind of believe the same thing. And so they, they have a, a religious, faith-built kind of worldview. But if you really press them on it, they wouldn't necessarily be able to articulate that. Maybe some of you feel that way. And so this isn't just outside faith. This is all of us. Convenience, familiarity, and popularity are such influencing factors about what we believe are our truth. And you can already see the problem with this. You can see where this breaks down, is that this would allow everyone to come to their own conclusions about 
what's true and, and what's not true. But for those of us, and this is not just true about faith, but for those of us in the Christian faith, this is not the way where, where we determine what is true or how we're convinced something is true. The, the Christian faith or the Christian orthodoxy would say that we have an authority, that we give the scriptures, the Bible, the authority, and then we run what we want to be true through the Bible to see if what we want to be true is actually true. We take what we were taught is true, and we run it through the Bible to see if it's actually true. Anybody like me, you became an adult, started reading the stories you were told as kids, and you realized, dude, they left a ton of stuff out. Like, some of it's age-appropriate stuff, but some of it's just like, nobody ever did Jonah 4, but that's a separate sermon. Anyway, so you have stuff that you were told was true. You got to run it through the Bible. This is where a lot of people, you know, college, young adults, you start, you know, questioning your faith because you're running what you were taught through the Bible. And then you take what is popular, or the majority of people say, and you take it and you run it through the, the Bible. Now, Jesus said something really interesting, and we read it last week in John 8. Jesus said that the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. This means a lot of things. We could talk about freedom in a lot of ways. But one of the ways that, what, one of the things this means is that when you begin to believe the truth, it begins to set you free and to, and to break you away from those converging influences that are shaping your worldview and you, your beliefs. Now, why does any of this matter? <laughs> what does it have to do with spiritual warfare? Great question. It matters because it means that believing the truth will feel inconvenient, unfamiliar, and unpopular. This is why it matters. If the greatest tactic of the devil is to get you to believe lies, and you begin to believe the truth, then in the process, we would call this conversion, that in the process of going from believing lies to believing truth, it's going to feel incredibly inconvenient, it's going to feel very unfamiliar, and it's going to feel unpopular. And that's really scary. That's really scary. This is why becoming a Christian is not just about praying a prayer. It's not just about joining a church. But that the Christian faith does require some type of conversion because the way that you previously saw life is not the way that you see life anymore. But in the process of that, there is a season of being set free by the truth that strips you away from things that feel convenient, familiar, and popular. And if you've ever been through that, hopefully all of us have, but if you've ever been through that, you know that that is a terrifying experience. Your bearings are off. You are building your life on the truth of God's word. Jesus said it's like building a house with a strong foundation, not on the sand. That's a good thing, but in the process of that building, everything feels inconvenient, unfamiliar, and unpopular, and it is terrifying. And so in a very real way, Fighting evil requires the courage to go against the ideas of culture, of society. And when you decide to fight evil, it is very normal to feel outnumbered and under-equipped. And in that way, it's very much like the servant that we read about in our story today, that Garnet read to us. In this story, Elisha is a prophet, not to be confused with his mentor, Elijah. Elisha 
is a prophet, and every time the Syrian king would make a plan of attack, God would tell Elisha what the Syrians were going to do, and then Elisha would tell the king of Israel. And this happened enough times to where the Syrian king um, assumes that there's a spy in his camp. He eventually finds out it's Elisha, and so he sends soldiers to go and to capture Elisha and at least interrogate him, if not kill him. And so now there's an army outside of Elisha's door because he's doing what God wants him to do. And it's easy to read these Bible Old Testament stories as cute little Bible stories, but I want you for just a moment to disregard the cute little Bible story, and I want you to put yourself in Elisha's shoes. He is obeying God. He is using his prophetic gift for the kingdom of God, and now there is an army outside of his door that want to capture him or kill him. It's not because he's disobeying God. It's not because he's compromised in some way. It's because he has decided to help God and to fight with God and Israel against the Syrian army. And I love, I obviously read this passage over and over and over again this week. And I love, as I've read through it each time, I find such encouragement from the fact that Elisha doesn't seem to be rattled at all. His temperament in this story, and really all the stories, really, if you want to, if you, you know, if you want to go home and read it, you can go like 2 Kings 3, 4, 5, 6. The, the author of, of 1 and 2 Kings, but specifically in this section of the Bible, he puts together all these stories of Elisha and the purpose of the stories is to show us the kind of man Elisha was and the way that God was using Elisha in the middle of a time in history that was not positive for his people. They're under the oppression of the Syrian army. They are, uh, there's massive poverty. Uh, there's one story where Elisha helps a widow whose creditors are trying to take his, uh, her sons. There's another story uh, where there is a, a Syrian soldier, commander, who has a skin disease and Elisha actually helps him and, 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 and heals him. There's another story where, where prophets are trying to build a, a building, a school, and they lose their equipment in the water. And so you see all these stories, and the purpose of these stories all being together is, is they want you to see what it looks like for, for God's prophet to exist in a time with, uh, with government oppression, with economic poverty, with disease. We, we see this time that he's living in. And as you read the stories, Elisha is just chill. Like, he's just good. You don't even see him raise his voice. He just seems to be really settled and really content. In psychology, they would say he's a very non-anxious presence. He's just at peace. And so... I can just imagine him, you know, this morning he wakes up and he, you know, he's got his coffee and his bagel, you know, and he's just chilling. He's just good. And his servant is not good. His servant is freaking out. He's looked outside already. And he says to Elisha, what are we going to do? There's, a, there's an army surrounding us and, and we're, there, there, there's so many of them. And what are we going to do? And the, the soldier's freaking out. I can just see Elisha just, just sipping his coffee. And I love the prayer that he prays, this very simple prayer. Elisha knows something that the servant doesn't know, and it's something that you and I don't really know, or if we know, we've forgotten it. 
While the servant is, is, is panicking, Elisha prays this simple prayer in verse 17. He says, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. Open his eyes and let him see. Now we know that Elisha is not talking about his actual eyeballs. The servant's eyeballs work just fine. He looks out, he sees the army. So obviously Elisha is not talking about opening his eyeballs. His eyeballs work just fine. He's talking about his spiritual eyes. This is all throughout the Bible. That In the Bible, blindness always represents a, a spiritual ignorance. It always represents the inability to see the truth. That's what blindness represents in the Bible. And all throughout the Bible, it talks about the eyes of our heart or our spiritual eyes. And so Elijah just prays this prayer, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And when the servant looks again, this time he sees with his spiritual eyes. And out on the hillside, he sees chariots of fire. Anybody else when Garnet read that, do the dun, 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 dun. Anybody? Just me, okay. I did that every time this week. I read the story. And I love what Elisha says. He actually says it right before the prayer, but I love what he says. He says, there are more on our side than theirs. That's so good. There are more on our side than theirs. I can just see him sipping his coffee, his servant's freaking out, and he's like, man, we're good. Look again. And he sees this angelic assistance. And he says, man, there's more on our side than theirs. And I chose this story because I think there's some encouragement for all of us in it. We read last week in Ephesians, famous verse about this idea of spiritual warfare, where Paul said, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. But we either don't know that or we forget that sometimes. And so we look at our life as it currently exists and we feel afraid and we feel outnumbered and we feel like evil is winning and we feel like God's kingdom is losing based on what we can see physically. So many Christians are afraid. They feel like it's becoming harder and harder to, to live out their faith. They feel pressured to conform in some way. They are afraid of the consequences of having Christian values. We have a lot of teachers in our church, and we're afraid uh, they are feeling this anxious feeling, or they're afraid to, to have to teach things that go against uh, their beliefs. We have so many parents in the room who are afraid of losing a relationship with their kids because they see the world differently or because of their religious beliefs or, or because of what they want for the future of their child. And they, they want to they wanna build a bridge. They want a relationship, but they also don't want to feel as if they are having to let go of their, their faith. I'll be honest and admit that I, I deal with fear uh, all the time as a pastor. Fear is my dominant emotion. Uncertainty plagues me so often. And um, so many of you are so encouraging. You'll say to me, like, I'm praying for you. Sister Mary will always hug my neck and she'll say, I'm praying for you. God bless, you know. And different ones will text me or call me and say, I'm praying for you. And I always say the same thing. Thank you. Please don't stop. 
you know, sometimes well-meaning people will compliment me and they'll say, hey, yeah, don't let it go to your head. And I'm like, we don't need to worry about the arrogant side, okay? We're way away from that. Let's pray for my confidence. Come on, let's pray for my confidence, right? Uh, I've had times when I felt like my family was in danger because of people who were angry with my beliefs and my sermons. We've had times when we've had to bump up security at the church. And it was terrifying. It was scary. And I, even as I say this, I, I want to just kind of back up and kind of say, like, it's so easy to play the victim. Christians are not the only ones who are scared, by the way. All kinds of different people groups are scared. Christians are not the only ones who feel like they're losing or feel like they need to fight for some type of freedom or rights or whatever. That's just the world we live in. Every group is feeling like some other group is winning, Okay? Every person who's ever been upset at me, it's not like it's all their fault. But there have been real seasons where I've been afraid because I feel as if somehow evil is winning. I feel as if somehow the church is losing. I forget that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm pouting at home thinking the gates of hell are prevailing. Forgetting that there are more on our side than theirs. And this fear that we feel is very real. In the latest research done, March of last year, 40% of people are afraid of being canceled. I'm quoting that because that could mean a lot of things. And losing their career because of their beliefs. That's a very real thing. But in this story, there is hope and encouragement. It doesn't feel like it, maybe right now, parent or teacher or business owner, But hear me, you are not alone. You are not losing. There are more on your side than theirs. You have angelic assistance on your side. God is fighting for you, and he's fighting this battle in the spiritual realm, and so you don't see it. But man, what if we could just begin to pray today, God, open my eyes. Let me see it. Maybe I could just walk down the hallway and just high-five some angels, like, and I'll look crazy. Nobody will know what's going on, but I'm just high-fiving the angels on my side. Um, but there's another point that, we, that shouldn't be lost in this story that we have to talk about, and that is this, is that evil is not defeated passively. Elisha isn't just up in the attic praying even though he was a mighty prayer. He wasn't just writing letters. He was actively involved in in trying to establish God's kingdom and and fight the enemy. I want to be really careful here. Please hear this. Because often, especially those of us who grew up in very charismatic Pentecostal environments, we talk about spiritual warfare and we use militant words like fight and win and destroy and defeat and attack. And those are Bible words. They are Bible words. But that doesn't mean that God wants us to be physically violent or aggressive. So maybe I don't need to say that, but I just want to throw that out there and make sure that you hear me saying that. When I talk about fighting evil, I'm talking about fighting on our knees. I'm talking about winning it in a spiritual realm. Okay, so hopefully you knew that, but I just want to clarify that. But it does mean that we are not passively just hoping things will get better. 
that we're not just depressed because the world's falling apart, and, but that we are trying to do our part to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As part of my prayers that I pray each day, a couple of times each day, the Lord's Prayer is a part of that. And so I'll pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And wherever I'm praying that at, so two weeks ago it was in Gulf Shores, when I get to that part in the Lord's Prayer, I'll say, you know, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then I'll say, in Gulf Shores as it is in heaven. Then I'll say, on floor 16, room 7, as it is in heaven. That's where we were staying. When I'm here, I'll say in Louisville as it is in heaven, at Hope City Church as it is in heaven, on Arnoldtown Road as it is in heaven. Because I want God's kingdom, and we should pray. God told us, Jesus told us to pray for his kingdom to be established on the earth. One of my favorite biographies I've ever read is about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I've mentioned it a bunch of times, um, but it's really fascinating because Bonhoeffer lived in a time of real physical evil during World War II. And Bonhoeffer's whole life, theologically, was a pacifist. And what that means is that uh, he believed that God's will was never violence, that there was no scenario where violence was ever God's will. That's a very simplified definition of a pacifist. And, um, but he was tormented because he also believed that Christians should stand against Hitler. And he was disturbed by the number of Christians who just went along with Germany out of Christian duty. Pastors who would say, well, we're just going to preach the gospel, but we're not going to worry about, you know, political things or, or whatever, whatever else. And so he lived with this torment because he deeply believed in the, in the pacifist theology, but he also recognized that there was real evil progressing through the means of the Reich and, and Hitler in, in, the, in, in Germany and then spreading all over Europe. And was actually one of his heroes, uh, theological heroes, when he was in college, and then they became peers as he got older. But it was actually one of his theological heroes, Karl Barth, who called him out, called him a coward. And, and this is what Barth said. Barth called him a coward and said to Bonhoeffer, he said, you don't believe in striking down evil, but you want evil struck down. But you hope that someone else will do it so that you can have what you want, but still be free to be a pacifist. And I got to be honest with you, as I read that, like I, I, felt, I felt convicted because I, every day of the week, like I will choose the, 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 the path of bridge building, the path of dignity, love. I want to do everything that I can. I don't do it always right, but I want to. But as a parent, as a parent, man, I want my kids, I don't want my kids having to, to face you know, evil ideas, if I can do something about it as a pastor, as a, as a husband, as a neighbor. And it was this argument that convinced Bonhoeffer to become a spy for the Allies and work to assassinate Hitler. He failed. He was killed for it. But he, but he came to the point, Bonhoeffer did, where he felt like he couldn't just read his Bible and pray. He actually had to do something about it. And this is what I mean when I say evil is not defeated passively. Every time we make the choice to embrace truth or reject evil, we are fighting against a spiritual enemy, and it is scary. It's intimidating. 
But our story today reminds us that we are not alone, and no matter how dark it feels, we are not losing. There are more on our side than theirs. But if I can be honest with you, you're probably not going to make much of a difference on social media. You know, you hear me say fight against the enemy, and you think, like, you got a great post. It's not going to help. You're not going to make much difference starting arguments or yelling from a sidewalk somewhere. God's calling you to do that. By all means, please pursue that. But the way that you make a difference, the way that you establish God's kingdom on earth is by building your life on the truth. It's by raising families that live differently. It's by building businesses that... that that run differently. It's by having a marriage that is different. And there's some of you in here, like God is calling you to, to, to build something or to lead something in such a way that it will make a real tangible difference and, and you will be establishing a small piece of God's kingdom on the earth. And it'll come through the means of a business or a, a product or a, a classroom. Some of you in here, maybe you need to run for political office. I will pray for you, but that's not me. I can't do it. You guys shake too many hands. But maybe you feel like that's what God's calling you to. But whatever it is that he's calling you to do, there there is a purpose behind it. And part of that purpose is to establish God's kingdom on the earth. And so listen to me, mom and dad. Most days it can feel like you're just cleaning up messes or driving your kids places, doesn't it? Nobody ever told me about that. Like, just, it's just nothing but driving. But you're not. You're fighting a battle. You're fighting a spiritual battle. Listen to me, teachers. Most days it can feel like you're just grading papers or trying to get your kids to listen, but you're doing more than that. You're fighting a battle. Grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, neighbor, friend, business owner, you're fighting a battle. And God is on your side. He's on your side. And you can't see it, but you are surrounded by angels who are fighting for you. They're fighting for you. If we had time, I could tell you about some other stories, but this is not the only time in the Bible where we see this angelic assistance. Of course, there are angels all throughout the Bible, but there are these specific stories throughout the Bible where angels show up for the purpose of assisting in some type of exchange. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that story? They refuse to bow down to the, 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 the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they throw them in the fiery furnace. And when they go by the fiery furnace, they look in the window. There's a fourth guy in there. It's God. It's an angel. We don't know, but there's angelic assistance in there. When Lot's family needed to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah through Abraham's prayer, an angel went in and, and brought them out. When Jesus was in the wilderness fasting and praying and tempted by the devil for 40 days, after he resisted the enemy, the Bible says that the angels came and assisted to him. There seems to be this common theme throughout the scriptures where angels show up and assist whenever someone refuses to give in. And so here's my challenge to you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't give in. No matter how convenient 
or popular, don't do it. And you remember when I said, like, Elisha was just chill? You remember when I said that? This is, this is something that continues with Elisha through the story. So he prays for God to blind the eyes of the enemy. They're blind. They lead them to Samaria, which is like headquarters of the Israelite army. And this is the part where a lot of Christians would say like, yeah, you got them. Smash them. Take your sword and cut their heads off. And you know what Elisha says? The guy says to Elisha, he said, the, the king says to Elisha, should we kill them? And Elisha says like with shock, like what? Feed them. Throw them a feast. Send them home. Even in the way that Elisha responds to his literal enemy. It's with grace and peace and kindness and dignity. And so here's my commitment to you as your pastor and about Hope City Church. I know that, listen, I, I know that we're not all on the same page and all of the different things that we believe. But here's my commitment to you as a pastor and as a church. We are going to stand for truth But we're not going to pick a side. And here's what I mean. There's really two dominant sides in this cultural battle that is happening. There's the really conservative side that is kind of based on this belief that the world was really great 50 to 75 years ago. And what we need to do is go back. We don't have time to talk about it, but that's not true. Lots of terrible things were happening 50 and 75 years ago, just not to you and the people like you. And so that we don't want to turn back the clock. That's not the answer. So we're not going to pick that side, the angry yelling side. But we're not going to pick the liberal side either. The liberal side's kind of built on this idea that like all structure needs to go, hierarchy needs to go, that we need to advance and move forward so that we can get rid of everything from the past. But you, just like you can pick the first group apart, you can pick the second group apart, it doesn't work. We're not going to pick a side. We are going to stand for the truth, based on what we believe it is on the scriptures. You do not have to agree with us, but based on what we believe is the scripture, what we believe is in the scriptures. We're going to stand for the truth, but we are going to scrape and claw and dig and fight to find the middle ground. The middle ground is the ground that Jesus found. It's the ground of grace and truth. That the people that lived lives completely contradictory to what Jesus believed and taught loved to be around him and to be near him. And grace says, I love you no matter what. And truth says, I'm going to tell you the truth no matter what. But can I be honest with you? The middle ground is scary. It's scary because now both sides are mad at you. If you pick a side, you only get one side mad at you. But if you choose the middle, you get both sides. That's one of the filters that we've been using to decide if we're doing the best that we can do. Are both sides upset? <laughs> and so we are a church planted in a city. And I want, I want people who come to Hope City Church, I want their families to be better. I want their lives to be better. I want this city to be better because we're here. But the way that we do that is we win the battle in the spiritual realm through prayer, through fasting, through interceding. And then we live our lives in a way doing everything that we can do to reject and resist the lies, build our lives on the truth, and establish God's kingdom here on the earth. And so my commitment to you is I'll keep fighting for that. 
And I hope that you'll join me. I hope we can do it together. And we will have God on our side. And angelic assistance. Chariots of fire. Soldiers fighting in the spiritual realm for us. So we're going to have the opportunity. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to have the opportunity to take communion together. You can do that if you want. You do not have to. But if you'd like to, there'll be tables set up. And as you come forward today and you take the bread and you dip it in the, in the juice, it's just a perfect reminder that, that Jesus came and he chose to do the thing that was inconvenient and unpopular. Everyone around Jesus was saying, why would you die? Why would you give your life? Like, you could really build something here. And Jesus did the inconvenient, unpopular thing, and he went to the cross. And he laid down his life. And so as we take the bread and we dip the juice today, it's just a reminder, an opportunity to say thank you, God, that you were willing to be inconvenienced and go against the crowd and go to the cross and die so that I could have a relationship with God and have life. There'll also be uh, our prayer team down front. And uh, I've just been really burdened this week as I've been working on this sermon. I've been really burdened this week for people to have an opportunity to come forward and to pray because where you are in your life, you feel like evil is winning. You feel as if, you feel as if you're, you're losing ground. Maybe you're a parent, a teacher, you know, a business owner. I don't know. I gave a bunch of examples. But you're here and you just say, you know what? I feel, I feel as if somehow this life, this truth this, is slipping away. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know where to go. And I just feel as if I'm outnumbered. And I, I just I feel like evil is winning. I would love for you to have the opportunity to come forward and to come pray with our prayer team and let them just pray and encourage you so that you could be filled with faith and go back out of these doors and live with purpose and intention, knowing there's more for you than against you. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that um, you did not try to fight evil passively. But instead, you sent your son to defeat death, hell, and the grave once and for all. And so, God, I just pray today that every person who hears my voice would be more full of faith and less fear. And, God, I pray that you would raise up this church to be filled with individuals and families we want to stand for the truth of, of your word and, the, and, and establish the kingdom of God on earth. No matter what it costs us or how it inconveniences us or how it puts us at odds with whoever, I pray that we would have a peace in our soul knowing that you are on our side. And you are not losing. You've already won. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.